As we were together last time looking at John chapter 18, we saw how the scene had unfolded. And in particular, we saw the arrest of Jesus there in the garden. We saw Peter take the action of cutting off the ear of Malchus. We saw, we saw Jesus rebuking Peter. If you put the four Gospels together, it's a composite picture. Jesus will rebuke Peter, not because what he did was unfaithful, not, not, not in and of itself trying to defend Jesus, but because what he was doing was an impediment to Christ fulfilling his mission, described as we saw here in the Gospel of John as the cup that the Father had given him. Would Peter deny him that he would drink the cup that the Father intends for him? You put the synoptic Gospels together, and of course you have Jesus healing the ear, but you also have Malchus come up again later. You have this, this, this very soldier come up later. The verses of John chapter 18 we are about to consider now puzzle many Christians because if you read them quickly and do not understand a part of the background, it can be a bit difficult to follow. But at the same time, there is a fascinating literary structure here that most Christians, I think, probably have never seen. And it's going to be a privilege for us to look at it in the time we have this morning, especially in the interrogation of Jesus by Pilate. There is more here just measured in literary content than most Christians understand. Now, of course, we're talking about what took place in space and time and history. This is salvation history. These are God's saving acts. But the same God has given us this word and has given us this gospel and intends for us to receive the information this way and we're going to see in a few moments what that means. We begin in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You'll notice something when you look at the ones who came to arrest Jesus back in chapter 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. But now in verse 12, the soldiers are in charge. So it's the soldiers and their captain, they're, they're mentioned first, and then secondarily, the officers of the Jews who arrested Jesus and bound him. Now a part of what's in the background to this and it'll become crucial in this passage as we continue. A part of what's in the background of this is that the Jews did not have their own sovereignty. That's the whole point. Uh, this is now uh, the entire area, the people of Israel, Judea, under the control of the Romans. Israel was what is known as a vassal state. In other words, it's a conquered people. They're allowed to have their own uh, government of sorts, are allowed to have their own religious leaders, but the real power is, and so far as Rome was concerned, always would be Rome. So the Roman governor is there to make certain that uh, Rome's priorities are met, that Rome's laws are observed, and Rome's taxes are collected. One of the situations you get with the vassal state, and th this is true whether you're looking at uh, colonialism in the 19th century or you're looking at Rome, 
Uh, a part of what, what you end up with is incompetent crooks in government. Because by definition, they are not so much serving the people as they are serving the, the emperor in this case. They're, they're an intermediary who ends up being disrespected from above and hated from below. And so when you look at that rascal Herod, and you look at the entire Herodian clan, uh, even going back to the infancy narrative of Jesus, you're talking about someone who had basically no Jewish respect and a great deal of Jewish hatred. It was not quite the same thing for the temple authorities. The temple authorities were the closest thing that the Jews had to an authentic leadership. But in this case, the temple authorities are out mostly to protect Israel over against any repercussions from Rome. The background to that is the fact that you had insurrectionists all throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, just think of the movie Spartacus. You have insurrections all over the Roman Empire. And uh, some of the hottest of these insurrections were in the very areas of the world that are right now where these kinds of insurrections take place. It's just with the current headlines about Afghanistan, guess what? Afghanistan was a nightmare for the Roman Empire. And it wasn't called the same thing, but that entire area of the stands, that entire area uh, between uh, Asia and Europe, known as now the stands in many cases by kind of a shorthand, and uh, of course the, the Levant and uh, Judea and uh, that entire crescent going all the way from what we know as Syria and, uh, and down into what we know as Egypt. It was always very contested territory. But in Judea in particular, because the people who hated the Romans more than just about anyone else, as they were vassals, were the Jews. Because after all, this was not just their, their patria, not just their homeland. This was the land of promise that had been given to them by Almighty God. And thus Caesar was not just a, a conquering external political power. This was a refutation of God. But... The, the Jewish authorities, the temple authorities mentioned here in the first century had a huge problem because there were repeated insurrections. And every time there was an insurrection, Rome won and Rome cracked down and the oppression was, was severe against the people. Furthermore, it discredited the temple authorities in the eyes of the, Jewish, of, of the Roman authorities. So that was the real problem. In order to keep their power and keep their influence, those who were operating in positions such as the chief priests, uh, they had to, uh, to basically be understood as those who, on behalf of Israel, put down these resurrections so that the Romans did not have to. Now, one of, one of the things we will see is that the charge that Israel will make against Jesus to the Romans is the insinuation that he is an insurrectionist. But the charge that Israel really has against Jesus is theological, and we're going to see that in this very passage. But as we just saw in chapter 18, verse 12, you have the soldiers and the temple authorities. They bound Jesus. First, they take him to Annas, and you have to follow this, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Annas and Caiaphas will play roles in John chapter 18, and, and we'll, we'll be seeing them again, it gets a little confusing. It'll be difficult at one point to tell whether it's Annas or Caiaphas. It turns out at that point it's Annas. But why would that be confusing? I mean, here, here you have someone identified as, as the high priest, 
that year. The background to that's also interesting. That there were three basic rabbinical families, uh, th three great priestly families in this case. So these are priestly families, and the high priesthood basically rotated among them. And they had tremendous control over the entire apparatus. And you see the hereditary nature of this, that you, you have Annas, and he is referred to as someone who was high priest. We know he was high priest in Israel through A.D. 15. So he was the high priest about 15 years ago. He's still very much a senior figure. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the current high priest. Now later we will have reference to the high priest, and, and then they will take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, how does that make sense? Well, it makes perfect sense, and Americans should understand this when other people do not. One of the things that puzzles people outside the United States is why we refer to former presidents as presidents. It turns out that in, in America's national life, honorific titles uh, of a certain stature continue with the one who held the office. And sometimes this is difficult to predict because you do not refer to a former congressman as congressman, but you do refer to a former senator as senator. You refer to a former governor as governor, and you refer to a former president as president. If we had a former president join us here, we would introduce him as president and Mrs. somebody. But they're not in office, but they continue to have the title. It was the same thing with the, the high priest. The high priest would continue to have the title, even if it was not the one the Romans recognized. But Caiaphas is indeed this year the high priest, and this year he is the one who must decide how the matter is to be handed over to the Romans. By the way, it is my understanding, there'll be military people here who can clarify this, it is my understanding that this has been an interesting and controversial issue in the history of the American military, made overly complex in places such as Kentucky. And uh, so it is my understanding, and I say this not as a matter of federal law, for I speak in no such authority, but my understanding is that in military rank, uh, full colonel and above stays with you after retirement, but lesser ranks do not. So in other words, if you retire as a full colonel, then you're a colonel until you die. And you're a colonel whenever anyone reminds, remembers you. Same thing true if you're a general, any general officer, you're a general forever, but uh, only if you achieve those ranks. But then again, in Kentucky, we're full of colonels. Some of them associated more with chicken than military valor. In verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, there is enormous irony there. It goes back to chapter 11, verse 49. So back in chapter 11, verse 49, let's just look at the plot to kill Jesus that begins in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, you see the direct thinking going on here. If, uh, if, if the people begin to go to Jesus, look, this is bad for the, the establishment of the temple authorities, of, of, of the high priests and others. It's bad in every way. It's bad in at least two big ways. Number one, if they all start following Jesus, then the Romans are going to assume that Jesus is the one who rightly ought to represent the people, not, not us. The second thing is, if he's seen as an insurrectionist, he'll be put down as an insurrection, and either way, they lose legitimacy. In verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, notice the consistency here, it's the same year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. 51 explains, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So it's very interesting, the logic that Caiaphas is deploying here, it's a cold logic, isn't it? No doubt it's a logic that he and those who had held the high priesthood before him had probably used before, every time there was an insurrectionist. Realize that the insurrectionists generally started their insurrection in the name of the Jewish people and overthrowing this idolatrous regime that was oppressing them, and it was the temple authorities who, who were continually troubled by these insurrections and wanted to put them down. And so the argument was here, better that one man die, insurrectionist, better that one man die than that the nation would perish. Now, you see the irony, I hope, whether in John chapter 11 or in John chapter 19, there's a logic of a man, one man, dying for the people, for the people. The, the language comes up again, for the people. But you'll notice how differently those two senses mean. Because in one sense, the high priest is simply saying, let him die for the people, as in let him, the insurrectionist, be, be killed with our complicity rather than he become a problem to the peace of Israel, and then Jesus dying for his own, as in shedding his blood for the remission of their sins. When Caiaphas said, one man die on behalf of the people, and even spoke of that death being important to gather together all of the children of Israel, he had no idea what he was saying. What he was testifying of is much bigger than he might have imagined. And he goes down in salvation history, not as one who faithfully served Israel, but as one who sought to hand the Son of God over to the Romans for execution. Expedient. This is an incredible word, translated in, in, in rightly in most English translations, something like what is here in the ESV. It would be expedient. It would just be it would just be a cleaner way to deal with this. It would, just, it would just tidy things up if we could just handle it this way. In verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, I don't know, who might that be? Well, it's John. John will say who the disciple is unless it's himself, in which case he shows up as the beloved disciple or the disciple Jesus loved, or in this case, another disciple. Now, why, why would John write this way? Well, it's a form of modesty. It's a form of modesty because he doesn't put himself by name in this. The other Gospels make clear 
that it's Peter and John who were the great duo. Where you find Peter, you find John. Generally, where you find John, you find Peter. And this will continue after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will continue the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 4, it is Peter and John who are brought before the Sanhedrin to answer for the preaching of the gospel. But there are some fascinating twists and turns we're about to encounter here. So Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Again, very interesting. So evidently, John was known to the high priest. Why would John, a very common person, why would he be known to the high priest? There is no answer that is given. But remember, we're talking about a very small nation. Uh, we're talking about a very small city when you talk about Jerusalem. We're talking about the fact that there were many families, including those who served the priesthood. There were many families, in, 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 including those who, who uh, produced even food for the priesthood. Uh, and so you had an entire apparatus. In some sense, John was evidently known to them, but that gave them entry into the courtyard. Now that raises another issue. Why so many courtyards? What is this with courtyards? Okay. Um, I had reason to want to look up an historical note about the Elysee Palace in Paris. It's the palace which is the official residence of the, of the French president. It is a massive courtyard surrounded by a house. So it's a three-sided structure, the main house and two wings, and in the, in the center is this giant courtyard. If you look at Roman houses, you'll almost always find this giant courtyard, a piazza. Uh, and, and you may wonder why. Well, the same thing in the first century. There's a reason for this. And, and when, when you bring the Jewish people into the picture, the reason becomes, it becomes even more important. The courtyard is a way to host without having someone in your house. The courtyard is a way of having a conversation at the governor's residence, but not in the governor's residence. At the, at the king's palace, but not in the king's palace. Uh, actually, even at the fortress without being in the fortress. Now, why would that be important? Well, it, it's important because it's a way of keeping people at a certain kind of distance if they're coming to do business. So if, if, you're, if you're coming to the... If you come to Elysee Palace... You may be invited to, uh, to an event uh, in the courtyard. Don't be mistaken, you're not sitting down for dinner. There are different kinds of events. That's one way of handling it. But for the Jewish people, there's another issue. And that is the fact that if they enter a Gentile house, they are ritually unclean. Now, they're not ritually unclean forever. They could go through the process of, of, uh, of becoming clean uh, through the, the uh, baptisms and washings and lustrations, other things that have to take place. But the point is it takes time. And remember, this is the Passover. This is the Passover. So the Jewish characters, these people that we will encounter, they're going to have to have business with Pilate, for example, but they can't go into Pilate's house or palace or they'll become ritually unclean. And so the Jewish people keep going from courtyard to courtyard. They're at the courtyard of the high priest because he's not inviting them inside. 
They're at the courtyard of Pilate because they can't go inside. One of the fascinating things we're going to see is that Pilate has to keep going from inside to outside. Right now, the scene is actually on Peter. In this courtyard where, because of John, they have access, Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So here's the courtyard. The door has, there's, there's a door. This will be like an entryway to the courtyard. John is in. He sees Peter out. He gets the servant girl. And by the way, it's another sign that this is outside. There would have been no girls inside the temple precincts itself. And, and so this tells you again, it's the courtyard. This would be a servant girl. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So that's the first denial. Three will come right within this one paragraph, just as Jesus had foretold. He said, I am not. Now just notice again the structure of the question. You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? You also? Two texts we should keep in mind here, the shadow of which from earlier chapters of John is very much over this passage. The first would be John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus spoke of himself as the bread of life. The previous day, he had multiplied the loaves and the fishes. But he made very clear this isn't about food. This is about eternal life. I am the bread of life. He who feeds on me will never die. Jesus had spoken so clearly about salvation in that passage. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of all the Father gives me, I will lose none of them. If you will not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Then we're told some of his disciples walked with him no more. That's not the 12, of course, but that's the, that's the larger group of those who identified as his disciples, nameless to us, but they had associated, they had followed Jesus. Jesus knows that some of them have left, and he turns to the 12 and says, will you also go away? Remember that. Jesus had asked, will you also go away? Who answered? Peter. What did he say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Will you also go away? Peter says, no. Very different Peter here. The other passage you should have in mind is John chapter 9. That's the healing of the man who was born blind. And you'll recall that in John chapter 9, the man who had been born blind is being interrogated by his neighbors. For one thing, how did this happen to you? How do you explain this? And then he was interrogated twice by the Pharisees. And in the second interrogation by the Pharisees, the, the, the man is called upon to explain who it is who healed him and how Jesus healed him. And, you know, th this is where the man all of a sudden sees everything clearly theologically. And he says, this is a fine thing. He healed me and you don't even know where he came from. And they keep pressing. And so then he turns ironic. And he turns back at them and says, do you want to become his disciple also? And of course they responded in fury. Nothing's by accident. This is, 
the fourth gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's, there's not an extraneous, extra, accidental word. Everything's important here. And, and as a part of the divine inspiration of the text, John himself is used as the human author, and, and John has this enormous understanding of irony that we need never to miss. Irony is a, is a difficult thing to describe. You know it when you see it. Ironizing means that you have two things that are put together and, and they, they don't pass easily. Uh, irony can be the revelation of the obvious in an embarrassing way. Irony can be an inside joke. Uh, irony can be either something that will bring a smile or a grimace of pain. An awful lot of the humor of a secularizing age is increasingly ironic because for people who have lost the Christian worldview, irony is uh, frankly one of the staples of their, of their thought structure. They're left with irony. Um, irony is uh, something that can be very, very, very hard. It can come as an indictment, and that's what's happening here. The use of that background, that background from John 6, that background from John 9, with everyone reading the Gospel of John right here at John chapter 18, they're going to hear Peter say, Lord, to whom would we go? They're going to hear that blind man say, are you also one of his disciples? Now it's Peter who is asked, are you also one of his disciples? And very simply, he says, I am not. The first betrayal. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Another irony. Don't catch the irony, which isn't in the language, but in the context. This is the Peter who cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. And now he is with the soldiers warming himself by a charcoal fire. It's just one of those ironic issues that's just right here in the text. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus. It turns out this is Annas because he's about to be delivered over to Caiaphas. So this is again like the use of the word colonel or general or senator. It says the high priest... This is Annas, who had been high priest of 15. He then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, here Jesus is rebuking the one who asked the question. Annas asked him, and you'll notice, he asked about his disciples and his teaching. So in the case of Annas in this first interrogation, it is theological. He wants to know what Jesus has been teaching his disciples. But Jesus just turns to him as if to say, you had your chance to have a theological conversation with me. It's gone. You had your opportunity to find out what I was saying as I was declaring the kingdom. But that opportunity is now gone. And I didn't do anything in secret. And, and Jesus here also, as if in retrospect, helps us to understand a part of his strategy. This is why he went into the synagogues. This is why. This is not a secret mission. 
Jesus went into the temple and taught on the precincts of the temple repeatedly, not a secret mission. And he taught openly. You have no right to interrogate me now about what I've been teaching because for three years I have been in the temple and in the synagogues teaching openly. You know exactly what I've been teaching. The rebuke by Jesus of the chief priests brings a response from one of the officers standing by who in verse 22 struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? The obvious answer from Jesus would be, yes, that's exactly how I answer the high priest. But notice what Jesus says in verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, Jesus simply says, if I said something wrong, show me where it's wrong. Annas can't do anything with Jesus because Annas knows what Jesus has been teaching. He, he knows exactly what's been going on. But the determination is to be rid of this problem right here at the highest moment of the holy calendar at Passover, Jesus, here, don't catch the biggest irony of all. Jesus has become a problem for the Jewish nation at the Passover, its holiest moment, when it will celebrate the sacrifice of a lamb for the salvation of the people of Israel. And now they will sacrifice Ask the Romans to crucify the very Lamb of God whose death takes away the sins of the world. As you know, the pace just quickens. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? You'll notice again, the same question, coming back, that same haunting question, it's as if we're back in John chapter 9. He said, I am not. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. This passage is also a bit more important than most Christians seem to recognize. It it's because there are two actors in this verse, one of them Peter and the other a rooster. The rooster's role is not unimportant. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the day's out. He said, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. Peter does so. So this is a Threefold denial. The threefold pattern, very important in Scripture, as you know. This is a threefold denial by Peter. Fast, fast, fast. I am not, I am not, I am not. And then the cock crows, the rooster crows. What is so important about that? It is because it is now day. In the cycle of Israel, it is now day. And a trial may be held in the day. So, when Peter denies three times and then the cock crows, it is as if Peter, Peter's denials have now become the last act 
before the onset of the trial, the cock crows. In verse 28, when those things had happened, we're told, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So notice, there, there you have the fact they're going, they're going as far as the courtyard, but that's as far as they're going to go because they're not going to enter the building lest they become ritually unclean and they cannot participate in the Passover, and it is happening right now. It is imminent right before them. Okay. You know the sequence, but let's pay attention to the literary structure. Let's just, uh, let's just read through verse 38 and, and sense it together. Beginning in verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Peter entered, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Jesus answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is this truth? What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. You'll notice that at this point, we have very little about any encounter between Jesus and Caiaphas, but we do know that after he'd been taken to Caiaphas, he was then taken on the orders of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. You'll notice it was early morning, cock crowing. Again, they don't enter the actual headquarters lest they be defiled. So instead, all the conversation is outside in the courtyard, but Jesus is inside in Pilate's headquarters. And this is the inside-outside part. This is the literary structure many people do not see. So they're outside. So in verse 29, so Pilate went outside. It says right there in the text, he went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Formal question very much a part of what would have to take place. If someone's being handed over by the Jewish authorities to Rome for punishment, Rome is a, an empire of laws. I mean, that's a part of why classical antiquity has so much influence over us today. This is why there's so much Roman emulation in classical architecture in Washington, D.C. This is why someone like George Washington modeled himself so much on, on uh, Cincinnati. The, uh, the great general who gave up power after having won the war. It's why 
he is often dressed as if he is Cato the Elder. Uh, this is that classical antiquity, of, of uh, going back to the Roman Republic in particular, but the entire Roman Empire uh, being the, the rule of Rome as an empire of laws. And Pilate is a functionary. Pilate came from a middle-class background, and uh, he was of a background that inclined a young man of, of his family background to have some kind of posting in the foreign service, and he drew the short straw. No one wanted to be the governor of Judea for the obvious reason that it's nothing but trouble for Rome. There, there is no glory in this. Pilate is so condescending about the people that he serves. He has absolutely no respect for the temple authorities. But they need each other in order to accomplish what both of them need. The temple authorities, the chief priests, they want things, the high priests, they want things quiet. It just so happens that Pilate wants things quiet because the one thing that can get you sacked as a governor is if you can't control your province or you don't send the taxes. Another story. They do do it together. Pilate here, early morning, remember, still probably dark. He went outside and he asked for the accusation. And then they don't really give him one. What we need to see is the indirectness of the charges made against Jesus. He asked for a formal charge. What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Obviously. What is the charge against him? Because of their indirectness, they didn't give any charge that Rome would care about. Rome doesn't care if he's creating problems for the temple. That's not, that, that's not Rome's problem. When they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered it over to you, the thing we need to note is that Pilate doesn't take that seriously. He responds, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Get out of my courtyard. It's the Passover. Don't you people have Jewish things to do? Go do Jewish things. Get out of my courtyard. The Jews said to him, and this is where, again, there's something explosive here. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Death. All of a sudden, everything is escalated to killing him. Where does that come from? In order to understand this, just go back to chapter 12. Verse 33, I'm going to begin at verse 31. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Being lifted up, it's a picture of crucifixion. Similar picture of crucifixion already, we should note in John chapter 3 where when Jesus describes the bronze serpent, he said, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. So more than once, Jesus has spoken in anticipation of the fact that he will be crucified. And here John just reminds us, we were told this before, John chapter 3, John chapter 12. In verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again. Pilate was inside, he went outside to talk to the Jews. He has to go from outside back inside to talk to Jesus, who's in his custody. So now he enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? It's a fascinating question, and of course that's the name 
that we know the title that will be put on the cross in order to mock Jesus. But it doesn't actually mock Jesus. That's the amazing thing. It, it turns out that it's the truest statement imaginable. He is the king of the Jews. And of the Jews, not the Jews only. The, the uh, temple authorities had said, we, we don't have the right to put anyone to death, but you do. Now, what kind of criminal would Rome put to death? Well, any number, actually, who are troublesome enough. But Rome was an empire of law. What was the one crime that guaranteed execution? Insurrection, rebellion against Rome. That was it, rebellion against Rome, insurrection. So Pilate may have thought he was asking a question that would again give him grounds just to hand Jesus over to the Jews and say, handle him according to your laws, which of course would not include the death penalty. Uh, there's no crime against Rome here. But the one question that would reveal if an insurrection is happening is if indeed Jesus claims to be a king. And so that's the background to Pilate asking the question. First thing, so he was inside, he went outside, now he comes back inside, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus then answers in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Very interesting. In other words, uh, you ever heard me say that? You ever heard my disciples say that? Someone's told you that maybe? Pilate then understands he's being interrogated theologically, which he's not about to have happen. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And, and so Pilate, who of course goes down in history as a, an example of a spineless functionary who plays this now infamous role in salvation history as the Roman governor who ordered the death of Jesus, you'll notice that Pilate begins in this entire process by making very clear he has no particular agenda in this at all. He's not seeking Jesus out. And, in, and John tells us, remember, it was Judas who procured a guard. Rome's not out hunting down Jesus. If Rome thought that Jesus, Rome's really good at spotting insurrectionists. Rome's really good at sniffing treason. Rome's really good at, at, at recognizing when a riot's about to take place. They're not seeking Jesus. Jesus is brought to them. And Pilate just doesn't want anything to do with this. Am I a Jew? Your own nation, interesting, ethnos, and the chief priests who delivered you over to me. But then he has to ask the question, what have you done? What, what, why are we having this conversation? It's early. I haven't had my coffee. This is, this is an imposition on me. Why are you here? What have you done? In verse 36, Jesus answers, notice carefully, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Okay, that's a puzzling statement, especially it must have been puzzling to Pilate. Pilate must be sure he was going to say no. If Jesus had said no, in all likelihood, the interrogation would have ended right there and the steps toward the crucifixion would not have proceeded. Just remember that. So just when Pilate thinks Jesus is saying he is not a king, 
he comes back and says, oh, now, about that king question. He doesn't say he doesn't have a kingdom. He simply says his kingdom is not of this world. He says, if indeed his kingdom, and if there's a kingdom, and he's thus the king, then he is a king. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. If, 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 I'm, if I'm actually a king, and my kingdom were of this world, then we would not be having this conversation because I would not be answering to you, but you would be answering to me. That my kingdom is not from the world. Verse 37, Pilate, now, now, he, now he understands his governor role has got to be invoked here. Something big's happening. Rome's going to be listening. He could be making history. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Again, one of the most famous exchanges in all of human history. Jesus, describing his own kingdom, speaks of his redemptive messianic purpose. For this purpose, I was born. Again, this is John 3.16. Again, just, just remember the consistency here, the fact that Jesus keeps summarizing all that he's been saying in the Gospel of John. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. Again, John 1, about his coming into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Again, John 1, he came to reveal the truth. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice which is what he has said, again, consistently as he was preaching and consistently as we have heard his preaching the Gospel of John. My sheep, I'm the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice and obey me. Pilate's not one of his sheep. Pilate doesn't have an ear for Jesus. Something else for us to remember, this would be very, made very clear as you know, in Jesus, in the, uh, his explanation for why he spoke in parables in Matthew chapter 13, there are those who see and see. There are those who have eyes and never see. There are those who have ears and never hear. Pilate has no ear for Jesus. And in response to Jesus setting before him the most momentous question, not only of this life, but of the life to come, truth, Pilate then asked the question, what is truth? The other Gospels make clear he washes his hands as if a metaphorical resignation to this what is truth. Now at this point, just think of what an abdication of responsibility this is. What is truth? But just think about something else. This is Pilate. We remember Pilate because he was the Roman governor of Judea. He is, he is the one to whom... Jesus has been brought. It is in his fortress that Jesus is now on trial. Pilate holds over Jesus the power of life and death. And even though Pilate is ambivalent about what to do with Jesus, ambivalence is just as deadly a response to truth as is denial. Ambivalence will lead untold millions to hell. 
Hell is going to be filled with people who responded to the revelation of God with ambivalence. Not just hatred. Because ambivalence is just a disguised form of hatred. It's just a disguised form of denial. At one level, ambivalence is even more insulting than denial because ambivalence seems not even to dignify the question as being as important as it is. Pilate is now at the very hinge of human history. He, he, he is right now, right, right, right at, at the crux of all of human history. And you, he thought he was this provincial governor who they had to give a job somewhere, and he ended up with a short straw and ends up in Judea. And now he's just dealing with this little riffraff and these troublesome people. He has no idea that he's the only Roman governor that little children are going to know the name of two millennia after his service. And he's known more than anything else for just dismissively asking, what is truth? Next week, we'll pick up on that. What is truth? We'll consider that in our contemporary context how Pilate is now very much the symbol of our age. But you'll notice in the next phrase, we're told after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He was inside, he went outside. He went from outside, inside, inside, outside, back inside. He has to go outside. It's a bizarre set of circumstances. Evidently, the Holy Spirit wants us to know all of this, even as Pilate is in motion. Because here's the other thing. How much of a governor are you? What kind of ten-pin dictator are you if you're the one that has to keep going from inside to outside and outside to inside? He's made to look like a clown. Many times I think some Christians don't see that. But again, we know what's at stake. And he soon will. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us such detail in your word. Thank you for the fact that every time we open your Bible, it is as if treasures old and new are brought out. Father, may we end on this question, what is truth? As we prepare to worship in the name of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Guard our hearts in Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.